0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Anthony Eden, who is using Rails along with Go and Erlang to power a domain management service called DN Simple. Anthony, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, really happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about Simple?
1: Sure. So simple has been around for about 10 years now. We're a domain management provider, which means we provide DNS, domain registration, SSL certificates. uh, And our focus has been primarily on making those things automatable. Uh, with a solid API that accesses most of our functionality, as well as tools inside of our web app that can automate a lot of the things that you might have to do manually. And for me personally, I've been writing software for whew, well over 25 years now um, and in a variety of languages. And the last 10 years have just been focused on making DN simple as good as possible.
0: Yeah, That's amazing. Like I've, I've heard of your service in the past. I know a lot of people who use it. Thank you very much for providing that, by the way. It's my pleasure. So you mentioned, you know, 10 years up and running on this site. Is that something you just coded yourself the whole entire time?
1: So the first, the, the product went from nothing to its first customer after three months. So I started in April of 2010, and in July, we launched um, at a Ruby conference. And so that was the initial inception to the first customers. And initially, when I launched it, it was only DNS, so I had a nice little interface. There was no API yet. Uh, it was just, you could manage your DNS and that was it. But already I had, I had people who were like, wow, I just want to be able to do this easily because they, this at the time in 2010, it was pretty bad. It was still very difficult to manage DNS in, in, in platforms, uh, in t- mostly in domain registrars. And so there was an opportunity there and that I just took that opportunity and seized it. And I had my, my brother was my business partner at the time uh, he and I are no longer business partners, but he handled the initial operation side of things, getting the servers up and running and things like that. So I could focus on writing the software.
0: Okay. And that software for the last 10 years, though, you've been the sole developer on it?
1: Well, no, that was only in the very beginning. And then in 2012, I think, yes, in 2012, we we acquired a another small little product. And with that acquisition um, was our first developer. And so then, um, and his name is Simone Carletti. He's still with the Insimple simple today. He's the CTO. And since he joined, he started writing a lot of the software as well. So we were both contributing. And then as time has gone on, we've added engineers. And I think now we're probably at, ooh, I'd say we're we are at maybe 10 engineers in total. And I'd write a lot less code today, uh, especially in the web application. I still contribute some, but I spend most of my time running the business.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And wow, yeah, that's Quite a bit of growth, right? Going from one developer to many is uh, always fun.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was during the first couple of years, we stayed very much just the three people. And, and then when my brother left in 2000, and I think it was in 2014, it was the catalyst to start growing the team. And so we hired a few people straight away, uh, two people to handle um, engineering stuff and one to handle operations things. And then we just kept sort of growing Up till we reached about 13 people, 12 or 13 people. And then we stopped for a few years and and we didn't grow any further. And then in the last two years, we've started growing again. And now we're up to the teams up to almost 20 people. And that's that's a mix of independent contractors and full-time employees in the US.
0: Nice. So just to set the stage here for the rest of uh, this conversation, do you mind sharing like a little bit of traffic numbers about what you get? Like monthly hits or like API queries, like whatever makes sense for your app?
1: Well, sure so so for the application itself, on the API side we 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 get quite a lot of queries. I'd have to go look and see what the latest is, but we're talking about millions of queries um, per I think millions of queries per day is where we're at there. And then on the DNS side, so our DNS servers, we do even more. so we we do about between two and five billion queries a month that is what we're handling right now um, and then in terms of, of number of, of customers, um, we have about set a little, almost 18,000 customers that use DNSimple, but a lot of times they don't need to go into the web app once they've configured things. Um, so we see a lot more traffic via the API because they have automated systems that are provisioning new systems and adding DNS records or registering domains, things like that.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And it's awesome to hear that you do have a really good API as well, because you know, if you want to do something, I don't know, like DNS validation with Let's Encrypt, it's like kind of have to need an API for that one uh, to do it in a sane way.
1: Absolutely. Well, and, and what we do is in addition to allowing you do to do that via the API, we also have a, a built-in Let's Encrypt integration so that folks can request the certificate and it will automatically create the necessary DNS records. And then once the certificate's issued, it makes it available to them as well. So that helps for the cases where they don't want to integrate with an external service for for generating the private key and then and then installing the certificate and all that, they can actually just integrate through our system directly and allow the, us to handle the Let's Encrypt uh, sort of the creation of Let's Encrypt records, so that so they don't need to.
0: <clears throat> that is very very nice. Uh, you did mention that you do have you know millions of API queries happening here. Is it safe to say that Rails can scale, or is that not the Rails component?
1: <laughs> uh, definitely. I, I that that's always been a funny joke. Um, Rails scales as well as anything else. Um, if, if written poorly, any software will hit, in fact, even if written well, most software hits different scaling milestones, um, where you just, you exceed what the capacity is that you have on a system to handle. And so you need to grow to multiple systems. And as soon as you get into multiple systems handling requests, you have to deal with things like how do we deal with state management across distributed systems, which is a, a fairly complicated issue. Essentially, as systems grow, I see it as the bottleneck just moves around. And so you're in a, you're in a constant battle to find and alleviate those bottlenecks.
0: Right. That's uh, very well said. Now, it sounds like you're using a whole bunch of different backend languages here. Do you want to just give us like a high-level overview of what is powering what then?
1: Sure, sure. So the, the core web application is uh, Ruby on Rails. And we're running on the latest Rails 6 version, and I believe on the Ruby 2.6 or 2.7 seven. I can't recall where we're at right now. Inside of our Rails application, our API is actually provided by another application called Hanami, which is um, another Ruby framework. And then, and that that all runs, though, within the same Ruby VM, essentially. Then outside of that, we have a lot of serv- little tools that integrate things together, written in Go. So we often reach for Go for various tools. Our, our redirection service is written in Go. So we have a service which provides HTTP and HTTPS redirection and that's done in go. our zone distribution system, which we use internally to get zone changes out to our edge name servers, that's written in go. and then our name servers themselves are written in Erlang um, and that's that's kind of the main languages that we use. We have other little things that are written in Python here and there or other Ruby things as well throughout our system. but the big three are Ruby Go and Erlang.
0: Okay. so maybe we can rewind a little bit then. and do you want to talk about a little bit like the motivation for choosing rails initially for the web component?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I came from a background of writing a lot of Java and I was around in the time when Java went through servlets and then JSP and then enterprise Java beans and all of that. And I was part of that whole evolution of Java. And in 2005, when Rails started to take off, I got really excited because I was able to build things faster. And in a a way where I was, it was just easier to manage. It was just easier to comprehend. The code was cleaner and it was really well done and it handled the most important things that they took a lot of these little things that are annoying and kind of hid them behind the Rails framework. And so for me, that was fantastic. When in 2010, I got to the point where I wanted to write something new, uh, it was just, it was the for me, the right framework for that. Um, I, I'd been writing Ruby then at that point for five years, uh, almost six years. And it just seemed like this was a no brainer to me. I wanted something that I could get built quick. I wanted to be able to iterate over it. I wanted to in- include testing in it. So all of these things were were ready to go right out of the gate with Rails, uh, which made it a good fit.
0: Right. That's awesome to hear. And here we are in 2020 and, and Rails is still not only just decent, right? It's like super relevant and a lot of great stuff coming in the very near future, apparently. Ruby 3 and new Turbolinks and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yep. Us too. Us too. We we tend to keep to the 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 simpler side of things where we both mostly have pages that are generated on the server side and delivered to our customers uh, over http or https in this case but at the same time i'm excited to see that the framework still gets the attention that it deserves and still managed to s- it has its place i know there's a lot of of movement towards single page apps and using javascript and i'm and I'm, that's fine like we've we've done things in that area as well but for me, it's, it's, I still feel very comfortable when I know that, that there's a simplicity of generating a dynamic page into HTML that gets delivered across the wire. And that's you know, it's done. It's nice.
0: Right. So then just for clarity then, for the web component that's written in Rails, is that not using your API then to build its own dashboard, similar to how maybe you, know, you could do something like Stripe's API, but then their actual dashboard is written against that API as well.
1: Most of the, most of the application does not use our API to generate its dashboard. There are some components that use APIs that we've built to generate them, especially if it's, if we're reaching out to third parties. So one of the tools that we have, for example, uh, does DNS queries and it does that in real time, but we can't rely on the, the DNS servers around the world that we need to talk to, to be able to, to respond correctly or quickly. Always. So what we do instead is we've we've taken that we have built an external API around that, and then we'll consume that via JavaScript. But the core, most of the application is not using our API to generate its interface.
0: Okay. So maybe now to switch gears a tiny bit, talking a bit about Go and Erlang, do you want to go over you know the motivation for choosing those? Because well, there's nothing wrong with either of them, but it's an interesting to have all three of them together.
1: Sure. So with an, uh, in in terms of the order, we actually went with uh, Erlang first, and um, for the name servers, I started. Re- so we used to run a C plus plus open source name server, and we still actually do run it for one of our components. But we used to run all of our authoritative name servers on that uh, open source tool called PowerDNS, um, and that worked really, really well for a long time. And then we wanted to start customizing some of it so that we had certain kinds of responses like our alias records. Um, And and we were running into some of the limitations for how we had designed that system. Um, and, And so we needed something else. And I looked through a lot of different things. I had written some closure as well at that time. So I experimented whether we could do that inside of PowerDNS, ran into some roadblocks there, tried to do, they have a Lua implementation built into PowerDNS, I tried there as well. Ultimately, though, I found that Erlang was a very good tool for building this always-on service that was going to uh, parse and produce DNS packets. It's got some really nice features inside of it that are just perfect for dealing with that binary data. Um, and so that, and I found a really good library that somebody else had written to deal with the majority of the parsing and the production of the packets. And at that point, I was hooked. And and so I just I ended up writing the name server. And we, we deployed it out um, when we moved over to our Anycast system and have been running it ever since. And I'm really happy that I did because it really is designed for, this, for these systems that are always running. They're just always, always on. And, and that's pretty fantastic because the, at the name server level, you want that, uh, even though we have a lot of name servers distributed out throughout the world, we want the reliability uh, of the, in those systems that we have today.
0: Right. And just to be clear because I am not a DNS expert. The
1: first thing that happens is when somebody, if somebody wants to visit a site, they go to a resolver to get to try to translate the host name that they have there into the IP address or IP addresses of the machine. And the resolver, if it has a cached record, may return that directly. And so there, it could be their ISP. It could be Google. So Google's public resolvers at 8.8.8.8, or it could be Cloudflare at 1.1.1. Not one or it could be, and so there's a number of public resolvers, and there's every ISP provides DNS resolvers as well. Those resolvers, in turn, if they don't have it in the cache, will actually contact our authoritative name servers. And then all of that is they don't go directly to us. We have a layer of DDoS defense in front of our systems that will handle the initial packet request and sort of filter out bad traffic, as well as potentially do some additional caching if possible.
0: Very cool. So that DDoS protection, is that coming from something you've grown yourself, or is that like using Cloudflare or something else?
1: That's using a third-party service. Right now, we rely on Cloudflare. They have a product specifically for services like us that only does the DNS layer. And so we we rely on that. At the same time, now we're adding on uh, at least one and potentially two additional DDoS defense providers um, before the year is out. Hopefully, we're just starting to test that. We've done proofs of concepts with a couple different providers, so that we can get some additional redundancy in there as well. Um, the idea ultimately is that we should be able to pick and choose from different providers depending on people's needs and their cost sensitivity.
0: Right. I feel like that's a that's a really important feature, right? If you don't have that at the DNS level, then you're really missing out, I suppose.
1: It's it's tough if you don't have something to defend against uh, in, against an attack, and somebody decides to go after either you directly if you're hosting it or if you're with another provider that's hosting multiple zones and they want to go after somebody else in there, uh, yeah, it can be a challenge to deal with that. We've, we've dealt over the years with multiple DDoS attacks and it is always a frustrating event um, because there's there's only so much you can do. It comes down to a question of how big are your pipes? How much volume can you take in many cases? Although we've seen some really interesting attacks uh, in the last couple of years I think since back in in fifteen two thousand fifteen where it's not even about sheer volume it's about lots of different sources so I think the Mirai attack was an example of that which used a lot of iot devices to to use to do a lot of attacks from a lot of different locations but not as high a volume but from any one location but just so many devices hitting at the same time um so yeah it's 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 super frustrating to deal with that and it always bothers me because we really want to ensure that we give the best level of service for our customers and here we have somebody else who for whatever reason decides to come after one of our customers or after us as a whole and and, and of course we never know why it it happens and we we can only deal with it we just we don't have any explanation they don't come saying hey we're attacking you because of this Uh, So it just, it's, it's hard. It's hard to deal with, but that, that is the reality of operating on the internet today. You, there are some bad actors that, uh, that, that will do what they think is the right thing to do. And, and regardless of who gets hurt in the process.
0: Right. Yeah. That's gotta be a tough thing. You just wake up one day or you get paged and it's like, by the way, there's like, you know, 900 million uh, requests coming at this. And I guess that Erlang service is taking the blunt of that traffic or no, like once it gets past the your DDoS protection, if it, if it were.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So once, once it passes uh, the DDoS defense layer, then it's our name servers that are handling that.
0: Right. So, I mean, I don't know timelines about this, but when it came to writing that Erlang service, did you look into using Elixir as an alternative or was that just not available at the time?
1: This was pre-Elixir. Uh, so when I wrote this, I, I can't remember when I did the first commit, but it's been years now. And if I recall correctly within a year or two after i wrote the first version of it i went to strange loop and actually saw the uh, the first presentation by jose about hey here's what i'm doing with elixir so it was at that time that it came out so i and i've been following elixir along we we have an api client written for elixir as well um i still really love erlang though i love there's something about it there's something about the 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 flatness of its namespace that i just i i adore and just things it's such a well well written system, uh, that I it's pretty much my favorite system and, and language out there.
0: That's awesome to hear. Now, just to put things into like some type of perspective, that name server servers written in Erlang, are is that like a couple hundred lines of code, a couple thousand lines of code, tens of <laughs> thousands? Uh
1: so it's I would say that it's probably Ten thousand lines of code when you put together all of the different bits. Um, I've never, I don't really think about it in that terms. But there's an umbrella application that is our proprietary application, and underneath that, it has an open source component called Earl DNS, and that in turn relies on another open source component, which is the the parser and producer for DNS packets called DNS Erlang. And then we have other components as well. We have another component that gets add in, added in for uh, providing zone distribution so that we can talk to it and tell it, hey, here's a a zone change, here's a zone change, that type of thing. Uh, We have metrics that get, we have a metric component that gets added in to capture and report metrics uh, to Datadog, which is what we use for gathering all of our metrics together. So if you take all of that together, it's probably a good 10,000 lines of code.
0: Right. That's actually really impressive, right? It sounds like that is quite an involved service and 10K lines of code is not that much code.
1: Yeah, I would I think it's partially just due because of the terseness of Erlang and the way that it can be written when it's when it's written in a, it, because it's a functional language and because of the way that it has polymorphic functions, which essentially it, it can you can write the same function that takes different shape of data, and that's a very efficient way to have function overloading and it's a very efficient way to to have code handle mo- like lots of different cases, and so the most complex file in DNS, I think is uh, maybe 700 lines long and a bunch of that's test code just to give so most of the files are pretty small and there's not really that many files in Earl DNS, but again, I've never really counted for real. So, so don't hold me to it.
0: Yeah. Decently sized service. Now, do you actually have that running inside of uh, a cluster then on the beam VM, or is it just one?
1: Uh, so we have, we run one instance of our name system name server inside of each VM. And then we run one VM on each physical node. So we dedicate an entire physical machine. um, And then in each data center that we have it, we have a minimum of eight machines. Uh, So redundancy on both sides uh, for NS1 through NS4. Uh, And then we have usually at least one additional machine there as well that handles other administrative tasks like passing zone data back and forth, things like that.
0: Oh, wow. Because I am not like an Erlang Elixir master by any means. but like. Is that clustering of those machines? Do you have them set up like internally with the Beam VMs clustering, or do you do like an external tool for that, like Kubernetes or whatever?
1: Yeah, we don't. We don't cluster using Erlang's built-in clustering. Um, we didn't need that, so instead, each one can operate independently and can basically. We have we have a fan out mechanism for deploying zone changes, where we send our main application will send uh, zone changes to a zone server in each region, and that zone server will then fan out the request to all of the name servers in that region. Um, and this has been this has been the system we've been using for lots of lots of years now. And it's worked out pretty well for um, for distributing zone changes pretty quickly and not having to deal with with sort of the complexity of having like a full ring where everything is part of the same cluster or figuring out how to do cluster when you have latency between different regions, because that's one of the biggest challenges we face. Um, so Uh, Dealing with latency between our main data center and our data center in Sydney means taking into fact, like how that's going to impact the communication. And if you have a chatty communication back and forth, that latency can become problematic.
0: Right. So maybe we can uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about the Go setup then. Do you want to give us like a a TLDR and what type of services you have with that?
1: Sure. Essentially anything that, that glues together... Usually we'll, we'll jump to Go. So for example, our zone server, the one that I was talking about that offers the fan out, that part's actually written in Go. And the reason we chose Go was because we wanted something that was um, low memory footprint and low CPU footprint um, so that we could, we could run it easily alongside other things. Uh, originally, we had I believe we had written some of this code in Ruby, and switching to Go allowed us, actually, I think it was our redirector that we did this, but basically we had, we had a, a service that was written in Ruby. Yeah, it was our redirector. And switching to Go there allowed us to greatly optimize how, the use of CPU and memory, I mean, to significant amounts. And that was a, a big factor for us at the time because we wanted that service to be able to run um, with as efficiently as possible on smaller hardware.
0: Okay. So was there a time where you kind of compared, like, well, maybe we can do that in Erlang, but the performance, like CPU wise, wasn't good enough, and that's why you chose Go? Or did you just not even think about Erlang for that? So,
1: yeah, actually, we did. The first, one of the first versions I tested was Erlang. So, the one that Erlang is great if you're going to let, if you're going to basically give it the entire machine, whether it's a virtual machine or a real machine, it doesn't really matter. But it needs to take everything because it it has all of its um, actor management. So, all of its process management is built into the VM. And so for example, if you give it an eight core machine, it is going to optimize to use all eight of those cores by default. Now you can tweak that you can, but we didn't really like, we didn't want to give an entire machine for this, the zone distribution or for our redirectors at the time. We wanted to be able to run them uh, on just a portion of the machine. And, and so comparing Erlang to Go in this case, Go got the nod because it was just an easier thing to do. Plus in terms of code, we wanted to keep it's like same deal. Erlang is really really good if you're if you're going to invest in something that is going to run. Um, let's see, how do I describe it? Something that is going to run essentially for a long time, and it's going to have a very fixed like it's it's once you've written it, you kind of let it do its thing. And the Go code we wanted to have a little bit more. Um, I think we ended up having a little bit more malleability in that language. And partially that could just be because the team uh, found it, certain team members found it easier to understand Go because it was closer to languages they were comfortable with than Erlang, which was sort of a, a, a step further along. Because Erlang takes a little bit of a mind shift when you want to move into that, that sort of pure functional share no memory type system.
0: Yeah, I can relate to that one. Because I remember reading the uh, learn Erlang the hard way, like seven or eight years ago, something like that. And I was like, what, what am I getting myself into exactly here?
1: <laughs> it took me three times. It took me three times to learn Erlang. And I tried to do it a couple different ways. But ultimately, I I, I was able to read Learn You Some Erlang. And that book was enough. And, and having a use case for it, which was the name server, was enough to get me to, to push past the barriers of my mental limitations for for dealing with a functional language. And it opened up a whole bunch of opportunities to better understand what you could do with languages that were not sort of object-oriented, which was, at that point, what I'd really gotten comfortable with.
0: Right. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about the Rails app. So you you mentioned that the web component, right, the dashboard, and server-side templates are being used. Is this then just one monolithic app, like the Rails way, basically?
1: Uh, Essentially, yes. Yeah, we don't use microservices. Like I said, we do have a few services that grew up outside of our core, but they're not, they don't provide core functionality to the application. They're more of like a, a, an external service that we, we needed, but we didn't need to bundle it into the application. And so, but the vast majority of the application is, is a monolithic Rails application. Again, with the exception that the API is written in a different framework that sits inside of the, the Rails app.
0: Right now, do you use any uh, fancy features of Rails like Action Cable or something just to push like real-time events to the dashboard or whatever, or no? Nope.
1: No, nope. our our usage is fairly straightforward. Uh, we we do so there we do move beyond some of the 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 model controller view uh, patterns that are inside of Rails. We've added a few little things inside of ourselves and inside of the, our application. We've added them ourselves. Some concepts that you know things like services and stuff like that, and we continue to try to refine that. Um, because those kind of grew up uh, ad hoc and piecemeal along the way, and so because they're not within, they're not provided to us by the Rails framework. They and different people contributed to them. We can see some of those areas where there are areas that can be cleaned up, and so we're constantly trying to trying to look into that and say, okay, how can we make this easier for us to maintain? How can we make the code easier to understand for somebody who's new joining in D and Simple, um, and how can we reduce the likelihood of defects? you know, creeping in, in those cases where we've added too much complexity.
0: Right. Yeah. I think one of the best things about Rails is, right, it's, you can just jump into the code base and you just know where things are because that's the convention.
1: Absolutely. That, that's a huge, huge value from it. Um, And I can't say enough good things about the fact that it came with these opinionated conventions and that, you know, some people say, well, it's the wrong opinion. And I can appreciate that there's always ways to make things better. But just the fact that at the time, it came with this very sort of clear way of doing things was a breath of fresh air, frankly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, speaking about maybe breaths of fresh air, possibly not, but maybe, uh, how do you have your assets handled? Do you use Webpacker with like Webpack or no?
1: Yes, I th- yeah, we've moved at this point. So I believe we're using Webpack. Uh, for everything, I don't generally dig too much into the the front end code, so the, the 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 asset management. We do have some JavaScript in there as well, and I tend to to stay out of that. But I believe that we're using Webpack. We also, if I recall correctly, I think for for the few dynamic things we're doing, I believe we're using Vue.js JS at this point.
0: Okay, was that just from like one of your front end devs picked that because that's what they prefer using?
1: No, he he went at it in more of a systematic fashion. He looked at different options that were out there and ultimately selected this because he felt it was the right fit for how we were using it um, in the sense that it was very component-oriented and it was also something that you didn't need to go and use just that. It fit well into our existing use of server-side generated HTML.
0: Nice, so maybe now we can talk a little bit about the rest of your tech stack. So you mentioned, you know, Rails, Go, Erlang, but we didn't really talk about, you know, maybe are you using background jobs? Like are you using Sidekick? What about Redis and Postgres and Docker and all possibly other stuff as well?
1: Uh, I can give that a big yes. Uh, So so essentially we use Sidekick. We we use Sidekick Enterprise um, and we're happy with that. It's been one of those tools that has been useful for getting those background jobs done. Um, We use Postgres as our primary database uh, and then we use Redis for non-persistent sort of Temporary data that we need to use uh, ver- for various purposes. Let's see. I'm trying to think what else is of, of value in there. Uh, so Postgres, Redis. Ah, I think so. so occasionally we do caching with uh, with Memcache for a very small number of things, uh, and that's mostly what we have. We run everything on top of Linux, so we run Ubuntu and uh, and as i mentioned earlier we actually have physical machines that we lease so so because because we're running an anycast network we we needed to build up a strong relationship with a with a hosting company or a in this case a colo company that could provide us with the ability to do anycast routing in their routers without us having to also buy all the routing and equipping and switch the switch equipment and stuff like that and so, so we have built up a infrastructure for the majority of, for all of our name servers, as well as our web application and our database systems. And then we've pushed some things out to services like Amazon in certain cases or Heroku in other cases, if we have something that was built sort of on the side that we might consume as an API, we'll often deploy that first to Heroku. Uh, and until we get to the point where we actually need to move it elsewhere, either into Amazon directly or into our infrastructure.
0: Okay, so when it comes to that decision, if you want to move it away from Heroku, is that just usually based on cost?
1: No, no, more more based on is Heroku the right way for us to scale it? So if it's something that needs to start scaling up, the question becomes is it it's it's not really cost per se, but is it the right place to scale it because we've we have some applications which have scaled we've scaled above it on Heroku, so we use you know if we need it, we do uh, larger instances or multiple instances, whatever it might take. Um, And I think so far we haven't really moved things out of Heroku when they've started there. What we have done is we used to have our redirection service internal and we actually moved that out of our internal system and into AWS directly.
0: Ah, interesting. Yeah, I guess in some way Heroku could maybe also be just a good, not a test ground because you know your code is pretty well tested and out there, but it's a good way to test, like, do we actually need this service and does it need to exist this way? And when, once you're happy with that, maybe then you can move it to your own infrastructure, something like that.
1: Exactly. I, th- I think the cost of operating systems always has to be, and cost, I, I think, not in terms of financial cost. that's one piece of it, but also the time cost. And if we want, for example, to deploy something into our internal infrastructure, that's going to cost us more time, even though it might ultimately in the long run cost us a little less money in terms of the actual hardware or network costs. The time is extremely valuable. And so by, by starting with something like Heroku, where we have, we, it's really fast to get it out there, even though there's a higher, perhaps, uh, financial cost to it. I'll take that trade almost any day because time is far more valuable um, in almost every case than pure dollars.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So when you were going through your tech stack before, you know, you mentioned you do, you are using Postgres as your primary database. Do you then have all of your different services like the Go and Erlang as well as Rails all writing to the same database or no?
1: No, no. So what we do is the, the Rails application deals with all of the writing to that database. And then the Go and Erlang applications will consume. Now, the Erlang applications do not consume directly from the database. They talk through the zone servers, and the zone servers are written in Go, and then those zone servers can communicate directly with the database, but only from a read capacity. And so we have, we have our database, our Postgres, we have uh, two instances of them, uh, one which is the, the leader and one which is the follower, always ready to swap back and forth between the two of them. And so our, those applications that only need to read have the option to just go straight to the follower and, and ask it for the data, thus relieving some of the pressure on the, the leader, which is handling all the writes.
0: Nice. So how is that experience getting the dual database setup going with Rails?
1: Um, the, well, with Rails, it's actually, we, didn't, we don't talk. So our Rails application will do both its read and its writes to the, to the leader. And that simplifies things. The, the other applications which are independent can go straight to the reader if they want to, and in fact most do. And so the hardest part there, which fortunately I didn't have to deal with, is setting up that replication between the, the leader and the follower. We use Wally uh, and uh, we do the replication that's built into Postgres now, which from my understanding is far easier today than it was in the past. And so fortunately, we've been able to, the one thing that's really great about Postgres is it keeps evolving and it keeps getting better with every release. And we've managed to to stick with that for the long haul and and benefit from all of the improvements over time.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how fast they crank out new versions and great new features. Because I feel like I just looked at you know, my database version. And it's like, oh, you're running 11. But by the way, there's 12 out and 13 is right around the corner, if not already out.
1: <laughs> it is It is pretty amazing considering what a complex system it is to run and how critical it is to so many businesses. It they The folks behind that deserve so much credit for the hard work that they put in. It's really incredible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So before you mentioned that you are using Memcached in a couple of spots, was there a reason why you chose to use that instead of just using Redis?
1: so we we wanted something i mean memcache's for us was a a very simple system it does it does one thing it just caches data right that's what it's for so for us when we needed that that's what we reached for for redis you have so much functionality built into it it's it's kind of in a lot of ways has evolved very quickly with a lot of different things and that that's a Good thing and a bad thing, right? We don't want to overuse it. And what we try to do is we try to use whatever the best tool is that's available to us for that particular job. And we found that memcache for caching purposes was just the simplest thing to get up and running and to talk to.
0: Right. Yeah, because with Redis you can use it as, you know, a backend for sidekick, but also caching, but also, you know, as like a website, a backend for action cable. Like, yeah, it's a Swiss Army knife that can do many things. Indeed. Now, when you're going over your tech stack, I don't think you mentioned anything about using maybe Nginx in front of Rails, or is that happening or no?
1: Uh, it is. It's just it's it's one of those components that I left out. But yep, that's absolutely what we do. We have Nginx answering in front, and it, it dutifully uh, handles all of our HTTP requests uh, and proxies it as we would expect uh, with no trouble whatsoever. That's been a solid piece of open source software that's that we've used for from the beginning, I believe.
0: Now, and this is my inexperience speaking here, but is that something you would also put in front of the Erlang server as well or no, or no?
1: No, the Erlang server doesn't need to do that. It 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 listens directly. Most of its traffic's coming in via UDP, and so it is it is sitting there handling that traffic directly from our upstream DDoS defense proxies.
0: Right. Just happily taking over the whole server handling a billion requests per second.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say we normally if we top out like the what we normally are doing is Five to ten thousand requests per second um, in a in and that's that's actually spread out across multiple machines. Generally, when things peak, we can see a single machine getting up there, uh, and those are most of those are just UDP packets coming in. And so that that whole system is designed to to take those packets and get them off the main request handler as fast as possible and off into an asynchronous processing, uh, and and let that. Part deal with that processing as quickly as possible. And that was actually one of those few bottlenecks that required uh, real research and investigation in the very early days of the name server because it it the, the first implementation um, was not as good at taking those packets off, like when it handled a packet and handing them off to an asynchronous process. And so it really limited what that server could do. And then by switching around the implementation a little bit, I was able to get a magnitude, order of magnitude, maybe two orders of magnitude better processing. But again, that was all through seeing that there was a bottleneck, finding it, and then slowly finding different ways to get it faster and faster and faster, as opposed to assuming there was a bottleneck and just making changes to try to optimize that part of the system.
0: Right. Yeah, it's always good when you just react to problems instead of trying to figure out what might happen in theory.
1: When it comes to optimization, I'm a big fan of delaying it until you actually have an optimization problem and then really using, especially now, using metrics to determine is that the right place, whether that's on the small scale. So if you're if you're measuring the time it takes for packets to get processed and you're looking at the number of microseconds or milliseconds that it might take versus uh, analytics that we pass to a dashboard to figure out what our average handling time is, you know, these are these are two different ways to look at the same problem. But by looking at the problem with actual data, it helps sort of, it helps not going down a path, which isn't really optimizing the real problem.
0: Yeah. It's such a scary thing too, isn't it? Because it's like, you try to pre-optimize because you don't want to be in the spot where you have to do it, like when it's for real, right? Like under the gun. But it's like, the only way to do it is when you're under the gun, knowing like what to actually do.
1: Exactly. Well, one of the, one of the things about our operational system that we do now in order to to catch cases like that is we have what we call our canary servers, and we deploy to them first. There's a, there's a few of our servers spread throughout our network that are labeled as canary servers. And whenever a name server update, whenever we need to update our software for the name servers, they always go there first, and they're getting real production data. Because with real production data, we catch problems that we wouldn't catch no matter how much testing that we did. And that could be real production data from our internal data or real production requests coming in that are malformed or whatever it might be. It's the best place to catch that sometimes is on a little slice of the data coming in from the real world.
0: So do you have like tooling in place where you can just, you know, dial up 1%, 5%, 10%, etc.?
1: No, at this point what we do is we we just have a few servers that are marked off as canary and when we go through a deploy process or deploy process is separated into two different steps. The first step is to deploy the software update to to our Canary system. And again, this is only for the name servers, but I think that's one of those things that people need to have working constantly and the design of it, it's it needs to be able to work properly and, and it gets a lot of really messy data coming into it. So we deploy to those first, then we see how it behaves. And if we find any anomalies that we don't expect, then we can easily pull that system or those systems out of the available pool of name servers, without impacting um, our ability to handle traffic throughout the rest of the world, because we have a, a, a lar- relatively large number of servers that are handling this.
0: Right. Yeah, that seems like a like an ironclad solution, right? There's no real downsides anywhere.
1: I mean, the only downside is we we still. If I could simulate this, I would only because I don't ever want to impact my customers, or I want to minimize the impact. Um, and there's also certain cases where things have slipped through and we, we just didn't catch them in that canary because we didn't have enough, either enough measurements or we weren't looking at the right thing. And that's always frustrating because you set up these systems that are supposed to protect you from failure and sometimes stuff slips through because nobody's perfect, no system is perfect. And, and that's always the kind of thing that, that drives me a little nuts, but we have to deal with it.
0: Right Now, speaking of things like slipping through, you mentioned that that Erlang server is, you know, dealing with many thousands of queries per second or requests per second, whatever. And it's handing that off to, to do some background work in, on the side. So how do you prevent like DDoSing your own background worker with that amount of traffic? Do you have any like rate limiting in place like on the outbound?
1: Uh, so we we basically have back pressure. Uh, so there's if if we run out of available workers inside of that pool, we would we would ha- we basically start dropping packets would be one way to deal with it. Um we have alerting in place if we hit that those types of thresholds. So we have various things that help us try to pick up if that's going to happen.
0: Is that like an and like an ongoing battle where you you're continuously having that happen, or is it sort of just like fix it, it's good for a while, and then it happens again?
1: I think it's more the latter. So as 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 the scale continuously grows, we hit maybe a threshold where whatever we set before works most of the time, but then we have a few cases where it might not work, and so then we have to track down why, um, and then we either fix the thing that was causing the excessive use of those workers, or it becomes may become a point where you say, okay, there's not enough workers here to handle all of this for any given reason. Usually, it's because something some change went into place that will that caused an effect that was an undesired effect that we weren't thinking of. Um, so for example, I, I can give you a recent example where just the architecture used to handle events and log something, that design caused a, a backup in the, the mailboxes inside of Erlang where there isn't back pressure. And that caused, um, that caused some trouble in our systems. That caused systems to basically uh, consume all the memory available on them and crash. And so that was, a, that was a real frustrating thing because it took a while to get there and it was only a very specific case that caused it to happen. Uh, but those types of things happen. If you have any, any system that evolves in a real operational environment, especially when you have maybe different people touching it over time, will eventually have a defect come in. As much as you try to not have a defect come in, um, at some point, the complexity just reaches the point where somebody will introduce unintentionally a defect that will only be triggered some of the time. And when that happens, we just have to figure out ways to address it. First, we triage it as quickly as possible to make sure that we try to minimize the impact to our customers. And then we go in and dig deep into it and figure out what happened.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it made me think about like, like, what is the development experience for this? Like, do you just have everything running in like Docker Compose, but a couple of containers? Like, how do you even like mock out DNS? You know, it's like pretty complicated, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it's actually not. So, I mean, if you think of it as just another service that for the longest time, I've I basically, if I want to run that environment, I will run the, the three components necessary locally, um, mainly because I, I'm pre-Docker. That means that I don't, I understand what it's supposed to, but I don't understand all the knobs and bits that you have to twiddle to make it work right. Fortunately, now we have team members who, who do spend their time fiddling with those bits a little bit more. And so we're moving towards the phase where you'll be able to stand up a stack of containers, which contain all of those different pieces for testing purposes. I already know some team members are doing that, even if I may not do it yet.
0: Right. Because maybe it's one of those things where as you're hiring new people, probably not the easiest thing in the world to get all of those things running like manually, just having to install Ruby and Rails and Go and Erlang and Postgres and all that.
1: Indeed. I, I, I look forward to the day where a new developer can come in and can doesn't have to install anything locally and, except for maybe Docker and yet can stand up a fully running instance of our application from end to end, including the zone service and the name service, and and just start looking at how it behaves. I, that's That'll be a fantastic day. And we're getting closer to that day.
0: Nice. So how do you mock out something like DNS then locally, just running? You mentioned like a name service.
1: But just run the name service. So I'll run our Erlang name servers on my machine. And so for example, one of the things that, that we do is whenever we do a revision to the open source core, which is Earl DNS, um, especially the the actual DNS packet handling, we have a suite of tests that we run that are kind of outside in black box tests. And they send in different packets into this and, and ensure that they get the right structured response back. And that that testing framework has been a great way to ensure that we we get the most common a, uh, DNS requests properly handled, even through change. And then we combine that with, with some unit testing inside of the name servers. And then also um, we use, uh, what's the name of it? There's a, there's a style of testing, and I can't think of it. It's basically, it, in, in the Erlang world, it's doing type check based type specs, and it's it's checking that all the variations go through that.
0: Oh, property-based testing?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so um, that has helped, combining all the things together has helped improve sort of the stability throughout change. And I think ultimately that's what we have. That's one of the biggest challenges whenever you operate something for a long period of time is that if you want to keep improving it, the systems have to change. And as they change, there are defects that you've you've never even, maybe they've been latent. And you, you don't even know that they're there. And then some other change triggers that defect. And, and so now it's not like you can go and you can necessarily say, well, this commit yesterday is the one that caused this problem. That's not necessarily the case. It could be a commit that was two years ago that was never triggered until something else was, was changed to use that section of the code in a different way. And so that's always really challenging to troubleshoot. Um, but having, again, the, the test suite from unit, to the the property based checking down to functional checking with the outside in sort of black box testing has been very helpful in, to try to minimize the the chances that those those breakages actually get out into production
0: right and we'll definitely go over more details about that like i would imagine you probably have some like staging environment in between uh, ci and and prod maybe
1: so for the web application we do um, we try to for the web application we try to maintain the we try to maintain the, the unit test suite and the functional test suite so that they are fairly comprehensive. Um, there are still edges there which need to be, especially when it comes around like view code and things like that, that we're still working to make better. We're, we're moving away from from tests from having just the views kind of sitting by themselves and instead moving towards view objects, which helps us test a little bit easier. On the name servers, that's what our canary is for. We 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 take those things out to canary and we we let them run in real production. For a while and check to see if they're the behavior if there are anomalies that we don't expect and that usually is enough to very quickly show us there's something that we didn't uh we didn't expect to see happen
0: right so i guess that would be a great time then to go into maybe some of the tooling you have placed to kind of detect if there's problems happening
1: sure datadog is our biggest one so we we send a lot of metric data to datadog we also send our logs to datadog for log processing and then use those and all of that feeds into their monitor system, which allows us to look for anomalies. And so, and then we have that hooked up to pager duty so that if there is an anomaly that occurs, we see it in our Slack channel, the on-call person, an anomaly that's severe will page somebody. Um, and we always have somebody that's in the on-call rotation. And then we have a incident uh, procedure that we follow to deal with any cases like that.
0: Okay, so if you had to guess, maybe, like, how often does someone get paged for that type of, like, pretty critical thing?
1: Um, So there are there have been times where we'll have, say, three to four weeks where we'll have, like, during that time, maybe two pagers go off. And then we'll go for periods of time where it might be a month or two with nothing.
0: Okay, and these things could be anything from, you know, it gets resolved in seven minutes or maybe an hour at most. Like, it, it's all over the place, right?
1: Yes, correct. And it could be any of the different components. Like it might be, it, example, the other day, uh, we had one of our systems just, just the, it looked like the hard drive got removed, even though we, so, so the alert we got was the hard drive was removed and put back in. Um, but then the facility said, nobody's in there messing with your hard drive. So it could be actually a fit, like when you manage your own physical servers, it could be a component on there that's starting to fail. Oh wow and so 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 that is one example where that will trigger a bunch of different alerts because all of a sudden things that should be working don't. Now the good news is in the DNS world, when you're dealing with any cast, you could just pull that machine out and nobody's for the wiser really. And in fact, the machine will pull itself out. If the system starts to fail, then it'll withdraw its routing, um, which is really nice. but that does cause alerts and it means somebody has to deal with it.
0: So what's the like what's the heartbeat on that pullout? Does it wait like 30 seconds, two seconds a minute?
1: I think it's I think it's checking every second if I recall correctly, so it's pretty fast. Wow,
0: that's like pretty much as close to the instant as you can ask for.
1: Yeah, yeah. the withdrawals, the the BgP withdrawals are pretty pretty impressive how quickly that works. And in fact, so much so that we also use BgP for balancing between different web servers. Um, so, so we can, with, we can withdraw a specific web server if we want from our pool of web servers just by withdrawing its announcement because it uses an Anycast, but it's an internal Anycast address. And so, so that's pretty neat as well. When you control the routers, you have a lot of control over things like that. Granted, you also have other risks that start to come up that you have to pay attention to. And that's why we generally have those things managed by people that really know what they're doing.
0: Right. So, I mean, you mentioned Anycast a couple of times now. And I'm not sure if everyone's going to know what that is. Do you want to give like a TLDR on, on what it allows you to do?
1: Sure. So in Unicast, which is how things typically operate, when you send a packet that's going to go to a specific uh, Ethernet port, like to, to an actual machine, to that Ethernet port, to that that addressed machine. Um, and there's only one machine that's answering for that. In Anycast, there can be n number of machines answering on that same IP address. And the, it's up to the routing protocol, which is at a different layer that handles basically which path that packet is going to take to get to which machine. And so normally they, they have some, out. They have, as far as I understand, again, I'm not an expert in BGP uh, as much as some people are, but my understanding is that it, it uses a, pro, a uh, what do they call it? Basically a routing mechanism that looks for the shortest path to answer any particular question. And it's kind of constantly updating itself um, based on what announcements are coming from different routers around the world and things like that. So uh, it's, it's a good way to have many machines answering for what is essentially the same IP address.
0: OK. And who said uh, distributed systems were easy?
1: <laughs> I don't think anybody has ever said <laughs> distributed systems are easy. If they have, then they probably have never written distributed systems. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm very thankful tools like that exist that I don't need to worry about that level because it sounds like even using that tool is hard enough as it is.
1: I'm just thankful that there are people that enjoy that love, like they enjoy understanding that and they spend their time becoming experts in that space. And that to me is, makes me very happy. I'm glad that there are experts out there that I can reach out to in those areas where I'm not as knowledgeable. And and that's if one thing I've learned running the simple over 10 years that is a, a very important lesson is that, it's good to have, to be able to hire an expert to help you when you need it.
0: Yeah, agreed for sure. Now, maybe we can talk a little bit about your hardware setup, because that kind of goes into what you were just saying about possibly hiring experts. So what was it like building your own set of, I guess, not quite a data center, but, you know, building your own hardware, picking out the specs that you wanted?
1: I didn't really handle that personally, other than authorizing the purchases. So we had folks on the team who who know what, you know, what machines, what the capacity, like what kind of RAM needs to be in the machine? How many cores does it need? Uh, how much hard drive space does it need? What kind of network cars does it need? And they look at that for the different use cases. And, um, and they've done, like our team has done a really good job of figuring out the right hardware that can really withstand the test of time. Um, and then every few years, we look at machines which need refreshing. So let's say that you have a machine that um, has either grown in use or maybe the, the, you can give it an equivalent machine now for uh, for a lot less or a much more powerful machine for the same price then we can we can schedule time to swap that out operationally and and that that's just sort of it's the kind of thing you don't have to think about if you're running on something like Heroku but our team has done a pretty good job of running this out of necessity hopefully maybe someday we won't have to run this way maybe someday we'll have cloud environments i know there there are already services out there that are offering on-demand systems with Anycast. Uh, We just haven't had the opportunity to take advantage of them yet.
0: Right. So I don't know if you're going to know this then off the top of your head, but do you know how many servers you have and like what the general specs are for some of them?
1: I think we're topped out around 85 servers right now. Some of those are virtual though. So um, I know physically, like in terms of the, the servers we have, like I said, we generally have nine in each data center. Uh, we have six data centers, and then in uh, in one or two of our data centers, we have a few extra machines. So for example, in one of our data centers, we have our primary database and its follower. And then in another data center, we have our staging and sandbox systems, which include web servers and database as well. So I think we, we top in probably at about, uh, I think, maybe 65 or 70 physical machines spread throughout the world.
0: Wow, that is a lot. And do you actually have like a like a VM, like multiple VMs running on some of them, like just to have the serve apps or do you just have them straight onto the bare metal?
1: So in for the name servers, we always run the name service directly on bare metal. We're starting to experiment with running ancillary services, for example, for additional metric gathering um, in containers on those systems. Uh, in when we run in Amazon, we run containerized there. Um, so we're, we're kind of mixing and matching and seeing what works. Uh, we still run our web applications on bare metal. Um, we still run our database on bare metal. And, and like I said, we run our name servers on bare metal as well. So, so we're, but we're slowly starting to adopt containerization. We used to run all of our name servers inside of, of containers. Uh, I think it was, I want to say it was Zen, but I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, but we moved away from that uh, years ago when we realized that there, at the time, the there were issues with network handling and it just, there were limitations on what you could be doing with networking and speaking directly to the, uh, working directly at the OS level to the network card was much more efficient.
0: Right. Yeah. Less moving parts is always better. Most of the time.
1: Most of the time I mean there's there's definitely an argument for keeping things simple as much as possible and and I think we one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to slowly reevaluate how can we simplify anything like any where we introduce complexity that we can start to remove it again, a benefit of having a long running system is that uh is that you can make those changes slowly over time as necessary,
0: yeah, it's funny you mentioned the complexity I was just talking to one of my Uh, Sysadmin buddies, and he's like, "You can never remove complexity; it just gets pushed somewhere else."
1: (laughs) There's some truth to that as well, for sure. I I I think that there are there are benefits of of knowing which type of complexity you want to accept. I think maybe that's the key, right? Like, where do you want to push it to? Yeah, is an important part of it. Um, And so, uh, again, we're we're living in a time right now that's amazing that we can deploy software so easily. Uh, without really having to understand what the underlying hardware is. But there's still that hardware underneath. There's still something under there. And so it's good. To, I think it's good to have at least a base knowledge about what's what all this is running on, even if you're not an expert in running hardware systems.
0: Right. Now, as for that hardware, do you know off the top of your head, like CPU cores and memory of some of the machines?
1: Uh, I think we have some that are, most of them I think are 8-core by default. I believe we have a few 16-core machines, but I'm not 100% positive that's the case. Uh, I don't know in terms of memory. I think it depends. Our database servers have a, a solid chunk of memory in them, but I don't know off the top of my head what uh, what we're doing for our standard name servers. I think I want to say 64 gigs of memory, but I'm just kind of saying that off the top of my head. What I can do is I I'm looking here inside of Datadog right now, and I could probably figure that out pretty quickly. And that's that's generally what I try to do is I try to try to not know everything off the top of my head, uh, and then just and figure out if if I need to. So, for example, I can tell you that one, this system has uh, maybe four CPUs, but it's eight core. So maybe they're using dual core CPUs on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just looking here a little bit about it. I can't tell, for example, though, just off the top of my head, how much available memory it has until I drill down a little bit. Yeah, it looks like it's about 64 gigs. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's standard. And I think the only exception might be our database systems, which have more memory.
0: Now, and and you don't need to answer this if you don't want to because it's too prying into details. Uh, Do you know roughly like what one of those servers costs?
1: It really depends on the region. Uh, So, for example, it's about four times more expensive to deploy something to Sydney or three times expensive to deploy it to Sydney than it is to deploy it in the U.S. Um, That's maybe because our hosting company is a U.S.-based company. Uh, if they want to deploy it in one of their data centers in the U S they're going to have more staff on hand. They're going to have more equipment ready. They don't need to ship it. Whereas in Sydney, they have to ship it over there and then the network costs are significantly higher. So we also have to, to factor in the cost of bandwidth. And so we have our, our machines are allocated specific bandwidth. We can go over that, but the, there's a cost for that bandwidth as well. Um, so I think for example, a machine in the U S might, we might pay two to $300 a month, for uh let's say $200 a month for a uh, a 4 core or an 8 core machine with 64 megs of ram and, and a sufficient amount of bandwidth to to handle all the traffic it needs and then when you go to Australia that same machine might cost $600 to $800 a month.
0: Oh wow. Yeah, that's a big difference.
1: Yeah, and a lot of that is attributable to network costs, but it's also just the cost of operating something that is far away from the where like the equipment has a long way to go. We also have to pay the upfront costs of getting the equipment out there and installed. Uh, So there's that one-time upfront cost as well, which can depends on how many machines we're putting in place. But let's just assume it's around a thousand a machine.
0: Okay. Now, I guess that's always a fun thing, right? It's like the new machine comes and and now you just have a blank Ubuntu ISO sitting there ready to go. How do you provision that server? Is it by hand or do you have like Ansible or something like that taking care of configuration management?
1: So we use Chef for all of our configuration management. Um, Once we get past the base install of a machine. Um, so we have to do a few things that are, are done. We, we use iDRAC interface, I believe, still, which is a, a way for getting directly into the hardware remotely and configuring that a little bit and doing the basic setup. But once we do that, then we let Chef take care of all of the rest of the configuration management of those machines. And that's that's across the board, whether those machines are virtualized eh, um, or not.
0: Right. Was there a, a point where, I don't know, were you in charge of picking Chef as the technology or did that someone else do that?
1: I was not. That was that was back in the very very early days of the Simple and my brother picked Chef and we've stuck with it throughout the years. Um, basically, we have a lot of configuration management built out, and the cost of changing that out is is not really worth the investment. What we have done though is we've initially had everything bundled together in Chef. So, for example, application deployment for the web application was handled by Chef, and we have since moved that out and. And move that into a separate system as well—the separate um, configuration management system, which is something we run internally.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I've always been a fan of separating, like, provisioning of the server and deploying your app to the server. Like, I feel like that provisioning is like getting it ready to do what it needs to do, and then something else will actually do the thing that you're doing.
1: It's—it's it's an. I—I I think we've learned over time that that's the right way to do it. It wasn't always the case, right? For a long time, it was. Well, for a long time, we did stuff by hand. And then when we had configuration management, we, were, we basically took the approach of, let's throw everything into this one ma- configuration management tool. And the, the way that configuration management works for a system is, I think, a little different than the way it works for applications. And I think that's why we've come to the conclusion as well that we had to keep those two things separate.
0: Right. So for that internal tool that you developed to deploy your app, is that completely custom from scratch or did you build upon something else?
1: I want to say we built on something else. Um, but that was the first version of it. So initially we had it built on an open source piece of software. I think since then, uh, it's been rewritten into a small go application, but I can't, I don't know hundred percent for sure. I know that it works very well. Uh, we can control it from within our, uh, so we have a bot that we can use to control it from within Slack. And so we do that and it queues up things. I think it uses, I think it also relies on GitHub's, uh, um, something inside of GitHub that deals with deployments. So GitHub has a deployment uh, API. And I believe if I recall correctly, it's basically the glue between that and our systems.
0: Oh, okay. So yeah, maybe now would be a great time to talk about like what it's like to develop a new feature in the app and then like walk us through the steps of that making its way into production.
1: Sure. So we we work with, uh, since the last year, we've done everything under objectives and key results. So OKRs. Uh, what we do is we, if we decide that we're going to bring something, into a new feature into the app, we figure out, is it large enough that we need to make it an objective for a quarter? If we do, then we, we normally go through a phase where we try to figure out what are the requirements for it? What do we think it's going to have to do? We, we start projects inside of, um, we have a GitHub repo for our business that, where we keep these project descriptions in. And we talk about what are the what does success look like? What is the problem we're trying to solve? Who needs to be involved? And so we we make some effort to sort of figure that out first. And then from there, it's up to each team to decide, the, the teams that are working on it, because we kind of, each quarter, we might swap around different people working on different things. It's for them to decide what is their process going to be for developing that. So in some cases, they might spike something and then throw it away. In other cases, they might have a real clear sense of what they want to build. And so they might go straight to, the initial um, sort of alpha version, we dark launch things into our production system with uh, feature flags. So that often we'll we'll get it good enough so that where we can start using it, and then maybe we'll hand it off to a few friends of, of the simple to start testing it. Um, and then throughout that, we're we're dealing with UX. So the user experience folks are are saying, okay, here here's my, how it might work. Let's talk about through like the flow through it. Uh, the the engineers that are working on the the Rails component, or if it involves the zone servers and, and the Erlang components, we, we figure out okay what APIs are necessary to communicate through these things. Um, what does the implementation look like? What is so we we just kind of work through that in in more of a organic fashion. So we don't have a strict way of how a feature gets built once it gets down to the teams, um, but we do two check ins every two weeks to figure out. Are we on time for this or do we have, like, are we behind? What are the blockers? Those type of things. And then once we've dark launched that, then we start looking at, okay, hopefully even before we dark launch, we look at the marketing side of it. What is the messaging around it? What what of our support articles have to change? Do we have to change our API documentation? Do we have to change the API as a whole? If we have to change the API, do we have to modify the API clients? Because now they're going to consume a new API endpoint. So all these factors get put in and essentially tracked inside of GitHub issues uh, that we tie back to a main project. And that's kind of how we develop. And we do that quarter after quarter.
0: Wow, that's an amazing answer. Like, that's really good insight of how a decently sized operation, like, gets stuff done. It it sounds great because it sounds like by the time developers get down into the thick of it writing code, everything is very, 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 like, very well mapped out in terms of, like, what they need to write.
1: I would say sometimes yes. There are still times where it's it's hard for engineers to not jump in and start writing code. Um, I think there are some folks that are really good at not writing code first, but a lot of us love it so much that we want to write something. And I and me personally, I often have to write something to throw away because I just need to see it. I need to sort of understand what are the challenges that I'm going to face that I'm not even aware of yet. And having that the ability and the, the agreement among the team that we're it's okay to spike something and throw it away i think is a, a valuable thing for teams that are working on an existing product where sometimes you have these features that you don't necessarily know where your challenges are um and that could be the same for new products as well it's, it's been a while since i've written new products so DN simple being around for so long i I've, I've, we've spent so much time just making dnc simple like Evolving it over the years, as opposed to trying to go and create something completely new.
0: Yeah, it's also great to see that. Uh, well, we didn't talk about this, but it sounds like maybe the Rails app still, from day one, exists today. Like you didn't do a grand re-rate like three years ago or something like that.
1: Nope, no, nope. it's still essentially it's evolved as opposed to to be. It, we've always we've kind of always cho- chosen evolutionary over revolutionary changes. Um, the exception was when the name servers, when we swapped those out and, um, and in that case, went and built a new system up from there. And these days, like we try not to do that as much when it comes to the DN Simple system, mainly because we want our customers to be satisfied and we want our customers who have been around for a long time to stay satisfied. And they stay satisfied when the system works the way they expect it to work. And so, um, you know, we try to introduce changes in a way where it is, it make those changes slow and as, um, as comfortable for our customers as we possibly can. We won't always get it right. Sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll go too far in a direction and our customers would generally go like, wow, this, what happened here? <laughs> you know, this, this really changed a lot. And so then we might pull back or we might not, you know, it's, it depends on how many people were impacted and, and whether or not they prefer the new version or the older version.
0: Yeah, I feel like PayPal struggles with that one. I don't know if you've used their UI re- recently, but every time I log in, the buttons are in different spots every single time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I it's been a while since I've I've had to use PayPal. Fortunately, uh, so so I haven't seen it, but I can imagine they've always been they've they've always been one to sort of um, they went a long time with no changes, and then things just started changing a lot.
0: Often. Yeah. So going back to your app here with those feature flags, do you deploy everything in the dark then, and then turn it on? And then also, like, what library have you written or used to handle all the feature flags across your different services and different languages?
1: Um, so we just use an internal implementation of feature flags to do this it's a database-based feature flag system where we can say that any given account has a feature flag uh, or has, a, has it enabled or disabled. And by default, yeah, we normally roll out something that's significant with the feature flag disabled for everybody, and then we'll enable it only for our team to get to get a look at it in production. Um, how does it deal with data that sometimes is ten years old? And that's often the biggest challenge is you have you have old data that might not look the way you ex- the best way that you expect it to look. And then that way we can start rolling out. Plus, having feature flags allowed us to roll out to different tiers. So we might decide that a feature is really valuable, but for businesses, in which case we'll roll it out maybe to our business tier and maybe our professional tier, uh, and never even roll it out to to our personal usage because it just doesn't make sense.
0: Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to those features that are not tiered, like ones that you might decide, you know, they start off and then turn on and then they're just there forever. Do you remove them afterwards then or no?
1: Yes. We we typically remove the feature flag, although I believe we've kept some of them in, but for the vast majority of it, if it's that type, if it's, if it's a dark launch feature flag that eventually everybody's going to have, then we often end up just removing that code once we're confident that it's out there and it's good and we're not going to take
0: it back. Right. Maybe that leads into like dealing with database migrations at scale and deployment. Uh, do you want to get into like what things you might do to protect yourself from, you know, downtime for our tables being locked, etc.? Hmm.
1: Yeah. So what we do is we when there's a couple of things that we've seen have impact on um, migrating data. The first is, is when when you're dealing with a table that has like a, just a large table with a lot of rows in it um and that's being written too often, that that can be a problem. And so n- normally if we know we're gonna change something about the schema for that table, we'll really look hard into whether we need to change that table or whether we need to um to do it a di- like to approach it in a different way. Um and we've we've actually not made certain changes when we said we want to make this change, but we've held off making them until we've had a chance to analyze what the impact will be. And we'll we'll often do calculations of what we expect. Uh, that will impact, and we've had to have times where we've taken our systems offline because there's no way that we could do that without having, say, 30 minutes of downtime. Um, but we try to minimize that uh, by by not making modifications to tables that ha- that are large, um, or by reevaluating: Do they need to be this large? Do we need to hold all this data? Is there are there other ways we can approach this problem? The other thing we've seen as well that that causes errors is when uh, background jobs, for example, when the code that implements that job changes, the API changes that can cause problems. So we've, we're now figuring out ways to separate that into two steps where we will allow the API to say that to support both, uh, versions going, you know, in, in not just in, in background jobs, but even our zone servers, we've, we've, we've had multiple versions of the API that our system uses talk to talk to it. And we, our goal has been to retain backwards compatibility during the transition until the callers no longer make those calls. They can't possibly make those calls. Then we can clean up the code in the, the service.
0: Right. So yeah, it becomes like a two or three stage thing instead of just one stage, right?
1: Absolutely. Yes. And and often two is enough, but in some cases we have to go through multiple steps to ensure that we that we don't cause some sort of strange... Uh, outage or inability to distribute zones or whatever it might be.
0: Right. Now, speaking about like API versions, what about the external API? Like how often do you find yourself bumping the version of that one? And like, how does that affect your clients?
1: So we're only on version two. Uh, we actually, so the very first version of the, the API was, um, didn't have versioning. It was written in the the, the original Rails way of, of having an API that was unversioned. Then when we wanted to add versioning, we actually had to go through version zero which was sort of that first one, and we had to migrate to version one. So that was going from not having versioning to having versioning. And we chose the, the idea of putting the versioning in the path um, for various reasons. It's, there's a whole, I have a whole issue from years ago about when we made that, made that change. And in fact, I think there's even a blog post on blog.dnsymbol.com that covers how we did it and why we chose to go that direction versus using HTTP headers for the version or something like that. And then we switched from version one to version two when we needed to make some backwards incompatible changes. Um, and then we stopped there. But I'm sure at some point in the future, we, we've we talked about certain design choices that we thought were the right way to do it in the past. But in fact, we'd rather um, make improvements on them that will require backwards incompatible changes. So I imagine at some point in the future, we'll hit version three as well. I just don't know when. And we do the same thing when we try to always use uh, sort of semantic versioning and if we're if we have internal APIs even that need to go through different versions, we try to make them as backwards compatible as possible throughout that process.
0: That's such a tough balance, right? Like I know sometimes I'm just developing like an open source library and let's say it's at version like 0.2 and I don't know, a PR comes in or something I think of something cool to add and it makes something that's like backwards incompatible. And, and now it's like 03 to take the mental fortitude to know that you have to hold off on releasing that because it's going to break things for others is like the hardest thing to do ever. Like I'm the type of person where I just want to like add a new feature and go go go, but like that's clearly doesn't work if it's breaking people's apps left and right.
1: I think there are some people that are, have said, you know what, that's fine as long as is. In 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 there's another approach to instead of using semantic versioning, you basically just use uh a hat like the the SHA or the 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 digest as the version right, and say if you. Want to fit, if, you, if you want to control it, just pin to a specific digest, and and that's time consuming when when you have lots of little like bug fixes. Now you have to evaluate each and every one to get into to your system, but some people want that level of control, and they can. Mo- many of the the systems for handling dependencies handle that today, so it's an, always an option. But I agree with you; it's it's super challenging to avoid making backwards incompatible mistakes, and requires really thinking about, okay, how does this API have to change in a way that is not backwards or that is backwards compatible? And if we absolutely cannot figure out a way to do that, then we have to be willing to to bump the version, uh, the major version for us. So um, it's it's tough. And the mo- the larger space you have, so for example, the more APIs that you have that are under the same versioning mechanism, the harder it gets.
0: Right. Have you ever looked into kind of like what Stripe does, where it's been a long time since I've used their API directly like with curl, but I think they have like a V1 in the URL. But then at the header level, you can choose a specific API version by date.
1: So we have not done that. Um, we just stick to to having just keeping it backwards compatible and, and, until unless we know also there's, there's another option, which is we know that there's limited or no usage of an API endpoint, but yet we still want to keep it there. We might break things there a little bit looser, but we try really hard not to. We try really hard to, to keep things backwards compatible. And often that just means don't remove an endpoint and don't, chain, don't remove a parameter to an endpoint. Those are the biggest ones, right? Like you could change the implementation, you could add parameters, that's fine. But removing anything often comes with that breaking the backwards incompatibility.
0: Yeah, it's one of the worst things too. It's when you need to change that one column to be from A to B because B is just deemed so much better, but no, you can't do it.
1: It's hard. It's really hard. And it takes, it again, I think the fact that we have a long-term business with the Simple means that we don't have to break things quickly. We can try to be stable and really think about the impact of the changes that we're going to make for our customers for the long run.
0: Right. Now, earlier, we kind of talked about, like from an organizational point of view, how you plan to develop features, but we didn't really go over, like, the mechanics of how that gets implemented. Like, does a developer make a feature branch and then, like, push it up, like, code review?
1: Yep, absolutely. So, what happens is that if you think a feature might actually be multiple pull requests, so we that's why we bundle them all under a project, but each pull request um, gets pushed up. We require, uh, at least in our primary application, two reviewers, and so we it runs through continuous integration, tests have to pass, then we have two reviews, and then from that point, we can merge into our main branch, uh, which will just get it in line with the mainline code, and then we use branch uh, branches for marking stuff as ready to go to staging, sandbox, or production. So we push to that branch, and then we deploy that branch. So we'll push to like staging, for example, and then run our deployer to deploy to staging. We haven't gone full continuous deployment um, we're still just like that, that, one little extra requirement to think like, do I want to actually deploy this has protected us even if it is a little bit more work, but that's generally how it goes. Um, and then it's the responsibility of the developer or developers who worked on it to go through any post verification. So in every pull request, we have a section for, um, initial verification, like does this work as expected, so, which is kind of like the QA. And then we have any, any document, like document any pre or post tasks. And then the final section is, is there anything that needs to be done to verify this in production?
0: Okay. So when it comes to playing the trigger and running that, I, you know, let's call it a deploy script, right? The thing that actually moves the code into some environment, is that run by the developer who's created that feature or a team? Or is that by someone like an ops person who only has access to that? No,
1: no. All of our, all of our devs uh, operate. And so we we take the, the idea of DevOps. We it didn't always do it this way, but we've really moved to this point where every developer is considered an operator and thus has the responsibility of of managing when their stuff goes out and ensuring that it goes out and doesn't cause problems. And if it does, they have to address those problems or roll back.
0: Okay. I think this is like an interesting discussion because... I know I work with some clients where it's a tricky balance sometimes to be like, okay, well, every dev can do basically everything besides maybe seeing like, you know, production database secrets and stuff like that. But like, if all of your developers have access to that developer or that deployment tool, is there a way to somehow deploy code outside the whole review process using that tool or no?
1: I mean, anybody could do it. But uh, one of our core values is that we take care of our team members and our team members would frown on a team member who would just nilly willy just deploy without any review. And so it's more of a social contract versus an enforced systems contract.
0: Okay. But I don't know much about your tool. Is it safe to say maybe that by using the tool, it's essentially giving them like root access to the box or being able to at least SSH into it?
1: So all of, uh, again, all of the team members who are engineers are operators as well, which means they have access to those systems directly. They can shell into them. They can do so. So what we have is we have a training period when a developer starts, they don't get access right away. What we do is we take them through our operations training. And that includes all like the, the understanding of what our security requirements are and understanding of what our operational parameters are, understanding that by becoming part of this, you join uh, the on-call rotation um, by making it clear what an incident response procedure looks like. Um, and, and all of that comes like we have trust with our team members and that trust is earned by one that we hired them and then two that they went through this training and that they they can prove and may and have a basic understanding what i found is that people want to do the right thing they don't want to cause systems to go down um if they generally when when that happens it's accidental and it means usually we've done a poor job in protecting our team members from causing that trouble. And so instead of looking at it as somebody made a mistake, we look at it as we have a process that is not right because it allows somebody to cause themselves and their team harm. And so we, we then look at those processes and we start to dissect where did it go wrong and try to improve
0: them. Nice, a really good way to go about it, right? If you're the developer working on the future, it makes sense to be responsible for it running as well.
1: I think it does in a small team like this. I mean, our, it, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to excel without having team members be responsible for the work that they're creating. Um, it just wouldn't be possible.
0: Right. Now talking about, I guess, you know, secret keys and environment variables, do you want to go over how that's managed?
1: Uh, we use a, a product called EnvKey, and EnvKey stores the secrets for all of our different systems. Mm-hmm. Basically, if somebody wants to go in and add something to EnvKey, they have the right to do that. But again, it goes through a review process and, and we make sure that that key is being added properly and that it's, and and if we don't, then again, we have a process problem. Uh, So, so yeah, we, we haven't always managed it through this tool. We've also managed it through Chef in the past and through other ways, but essentially that's where we've ended up in with where everything's pretty much managed inside of NKey.
0: Okay. Awesome. So we didn't get a chance to talk a bit about this one, but for whatever reason, that reminded me about something you said earlier about having different tiers of, of people who can sign up, right? I mean, this is a paid product at the end of the day. Do you use Stripe to handle all the payments or something else?
1: We use Stripe. Yep. Yeah. So we didn't always. We used to use another, t- we used to use, well, so we started with Chargeify because Stripe didn't exist at the time, uh, or at least wasn't in my knowledge space. And then, um, and we used to go through authorized.net for processing credit cards. And then, Uh, some years ago, uh, again, I think there's a blog post about this on blog.danceable.com. We switched from authorized.net to Stripe just for the processing. And we were still using Chargeify for handling subscription management. And then a couple years back, we started the move over to Stripe for all of the, the subscription processing as well and have since completed that move. So at this point, all of that is handled through Stripe. Uh, with the exception of a few managed accounts, where they they're higher end customers that don't fit into our normal plans, so they're not self service; they're managed. In which case, all bets are off, and we work with each one individually.
0: Right now, when it comes to that Stripe setup, do you use any of their extra paid features, like Radar for fraud protection?
1: Yeah, we haven't always, but uh, we we use Radar now for fraud protection. Not much else, though, beyond that, I don't think.
0: Right. And I would imagine all the APIs are updated to use SCA.
1: Uh, That'd be a great question for the engineer that worked on that. I Again, we're at the point where there's enough of us where I, I can't do all of those things. So I couldn't tell you, but my guess is yes.
0: Okay. That's actually a great position to be in, right? It's like you don't know the internals of everything, yet everything works.
1: Yeah, I can't exactly. I have to depend on my team to to build and operate good portions of being simple now because it's just too much for, for me to keep in my head or to even know all about. And that goes back to why we do operations the way we do and why we trust the way we do because we it's essential to operate this business the way that we operate it today at the size we're at. As we get larger, perhaps that changes and we have to introduce more sort of divisions, if you will, just because the complexity is too hard to manage uh, even by... The team as it is now but I have no idea we're not at that point yet we can still operate where we we anybody has the ability to do anything and they get to often either partially or fully choose who they're working with at any given point in time
0: so going on about that now where you know everyone has access to everything you know not through the fault of anyone but you know disaster strikes once in a while so maybe now we can talk a little bit about how you plan for that or you know unexpected events etc. You mentioned having, you know, um, both, both a master and slave for the database setup. Uh, do you want to get into maybe like, do you also do SQL dumps of that or not or no?
1: Um, so we have dual mechanisms for backing up data. We do snapshots of data and we also stream our WALL-E data to a offsite backup as well. So that's the replication data that the follower would use. And, and that allows the follower to to pick up at any point in time um, from from that Replication stream, if necessary. Uh, we then have processes in place that check the validity of those backups on a regular basis as well, automated processes. And then we do, uh, we have usually a couple times a year, we do a manual verification as well. So that's for our primary data source. And then <clears throat> I think it comes down to measuring. We measure a lot of, uh, we're looking for anomalies. So we might measure. How much data is passing through a particular thing? How you know what whether the backups are being written at the right time, or all these different pieces that we're measuring. And if those measures measurements go off, then we often have a monitor in place that's ready to trigger. And to it, sometimes we use a low level alert, so it'll just put into Slack and say something's not right here. An example could be that a hard drive is starting to fill up for some reason, maybe because the logging was a little excessive for some process that was released recently. Well, we, we have a, a system for for capturing that metric and for uh, alerting on it if it happens.
0: Okay. Is that system through the Datadog agent or something else?
1: Yep, we use the Dat- Datadog is the core of all of our monitoring, and so we, we rely on that. We do have some other things that we're working on for, for adding additional monitoring, but that's that's all being prototyped now. Um, for different purposes, mainly because there's a few things that might not fit into Datadog that we still want to monitor. So we're trying to make sure that we have all of our bases covered. But really, the disaster recovery comes from having good processes and then testing those processes regularly.
0: Right. And then like one last point about that about disaster recovery. Like you know, if if exceptions get thrown, do you use Datadog for that as well, or do you have like Sentry or something else hooked up?
1: We use Bugsnag. So w- for error handling, we have all of our different systems. Populate into Bugsnag, and we also we it the logs themselves also go to Datadog, and we also graph those and have monitors on those. So if we have a spike in error handling that's unexpected, we will see that from multiple points of view.
0: Ah, oh, very nice. Do you also have like some like high level check going on, like checking to make sure you know your homepage is still up, like throwing a two hundred like it should?
1: We have a couple different things. We believe it or not, we're still using Pingdom for a lot of that. Um, uh, which is has been a service that has been around for a long time, but it still works. So we we have a few sort of black box checks uh, where we don't know. It doesn't know what's going on. It just hits the HTTP endpoint, and expects a, like, a specific result. And so we use, we use both Datadog and Pingdom for that. And I think that we've even tried out other services as well.
0: Right. Speaking of maybe like other services, do you have like a status page service set up or do you internally manage that?
1: No, we we've we've had a status page for a long time. We we use statuspage.io, which was bought by Atlassian, and we've we've ended up starting to use Atlassian for a number of products. Uh, status page is one of them. And Then we use Confluence as well for our internal documentation wiki.
0: Okay. What about like maybe some other tools that you use to help manage all those features that need to get implemented? Right. Like, do you use like uh, besides GitHub issues, like any special tools for that, like a Trello board or whatever?
1: We we so right now we use a Trello board for tracking our OKRs. Um, And then we're starting to experiment with using Miro, which is sort of a a visual design board thing where you could put sticky notes on it and and different diagrams and things like that. And we're trying, I'm trying an experiment before this year is out to see if we can get, (laughs) my goal is always to go one step higher in terms of visualization, have a view of everything that's happening inside DN Simple and OKRs capture some of that. But we still have our day-to-day processes. We still have our post-incident uh, issues that we need to deal with. We have maintenance issues. We have other projects that might come from marketing or business that don't fall under OKRs. And so now I'm trying a view, which is really as high level as I can get, that's trying to capture everything that's going on and who's working on each of those things. And we're, we're experimenting with Miro to do that, M-I-R-O.
0: Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a link to that one in the show notes. I never heard about that one. So, I mean... You know, COVID is still going on now, but uh, if COVID weren't existing, did everyone just go to the office or did you have a split team across the world?
1: Uh, we're fully remote. We've been remote from day one. Uh, we have never had a centralized office and probably never will. Um, we have a home base, which is in Florida, but that's mainly for for having a physical spot where we can send mail to and things like that. But the team is, is all over the world. Um, we do get together at least Pre-COVID, we we tried to get together two to three times each year in person, where we would pull everybody from the team together in a location, um, fly everybody into one spot, and spend a week together. Because it's it was nice to see everybody face to face, and it also gave us an opportunity to to sort of set strategic ideas in motion, um, discuss and brainstorm things maybe that are harder to discuss over uh, over a. A Slack call or over Zoom or Jitsi, whatever you might use. Since COVID, we've we've leaned heavily on on having a few more synchronous meetings, but the vast majority of the work we do is asynchronous. We try to document things in issues inside of GitHub or in the wiki or wherever it might be, and whenever decisions are made, those decisions get documented. And that has helped tremendously to allow us to have this distributed team that can work across 10 time zones. So we have everybody from, I think the farthest we go out is Bulgaria to the east and then all the way to the west coast of the United States.
0: Oh, wow. So that person from Bulgaria must love those uh, Tahoe trips with like a 20 hour plane ride.
1: Well, we've had oh, there we've had some people. We we do a lot of our had a lot of our meetups in Europe. We found that having finding space for larger groups has has typically been easier here and at a more reasonable price. And it's it's a challenge for the folks from the U.S. to fly over because it is it's usually twelve to fifteen hours of travel minimum. Um, but they you know they get a week of time together with their coworkers. Uh, everything's covered by the company, and it, and it's really an opportunity to get together and share. Um, ideas and brainstorm. And I think that the value is offset by that travel challenge. So I, I think it offsets it.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely a nice perk to have. So do you want to go over maybe some of the best tips and, and lessons learned from building this out over the last 10 years?
1: Sure. Uh, so at the most basic level, I think that any business, as it starts to grow, if it has an operational side to it, needs to have good processes in place. I think that's the the thing that I've learned over the years is that you start off with with either no processes or very lightweight processes. And that works great when it's one, two, three people. As soon as you start to get to 10 or 15 people, you have to have good processes in place. Otherwise there's just confusion. And it took us a while to get to that point. Now it's much better, but we, can, we always strive to do better. I, I spend a lot of my time just thinking, how is this process, where are the weaknesses and how is it going to let us down? And how do we need to work to make it better? And just the thought of doing that, the thought experiment of running through that often helps find uh, inefficiencies as well as as potential for defects. So, and that applies equally well to whether it's technical operations, systems management, um, business operations, customer success, marketing, it doesn't really matter. it it just helps to to take things and and if, if anything's gonna be done more than once, to have at least some sort of process that's documented. Um, beyond that, <laughs> I'm a big fan of hiring good people and giving them the trust and responsibility that they deserve and then, and then putting systems in place to help protect them from, from accidents happening. Uh, and that's it. That's, that's, that's my little bit of knowledge. This has nothing to do with choosing particular technology or a tech stack or, or choices about how to deploy or operate things. That, that's all dependent on the systems that you're building and running.
0: Yeah. That is really, really great advice. And it's like, it is so true, right? It's like almost anything. You can't really automate it until you've done it by hand, at least once, like multiple times. And then, yeah, you just iron things out as you go.
1: Yeah. One of our core values is, um, is to create simple processes and then automate them. That's, that's, and, and that's been core to DN Simple. Even before we said that as a core value, it was just part of the DNA of, of the company is um, define these processes and then find ways to automate some or all of them.
0: Awesome. So Anthony, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on.
1: Thanks for having me, Nick. It was, it was a pleasure to be here. And I hope uh, that, that your listeners got some useful information out of this. Oh, yeah.
0: I think they will for sure. So before I wrap this up, though, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that?
1: Um, well, you can get to dnsimple pretty straightforward. It's just dnsimple.com. We have some really fun comics that I like to share, how DNS.works and how https.works. And then I'm on Twitter as AEden, if you wanna although I don't tweet so much these days, but I'm there if you want to reach out to me uh, or on LinkedIn.
0: Sounds good. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production Podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.